Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Petko Stoyanov and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host, Petko Stoyanov. This week, we welcome Bug Crowd Chairperson, Founder, and Chief Technology Officer, Casey Ellis. Get ready for a great conversation, folks. And with that, let's get to the point. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I'm joined today by Casey Ellis, the Chairman, Founder, and CTO of Bug Crowd, and he's also the co-founder of the Disclosure IO Project. Welcome, Casey. Thanks for having me. You know, you've had a long career, um, I think, doing this for over 20 years, as most of the folks in our, as our listeners are listening to. You've pioneered the concept of bug sourcing as a security service, right? You, you, can you tell us more about that program and what, what you've been up to since then? Oh, that's, um, I appreciate that. And yeah, I think like a lot of people of, of my age and stage in, in this industry, um, I grew up fascinated by it as a kid and kind of tripped over into it, you know, out of high school and, and everything kind of went from there. So, you know, from what I've heard, that's a fairly common story and, and some of the listeners might actually relate to that. Um, with respect to bug crowd, you know, what, what we did, we didn't actually invent, you know, vulnerability disclosure or bug bounty programs. That was prior art for sure. Like, you know, one of the earliest examples of a bug bounty program goes back to 1995, I think with Netscape. Um, and there's examples prior to that as well. But what we did was to pretty much, you know, pioneer this idea of, of building a, a platform that sits in between the latent potential and all the creativity of, of white hat hackers and security researchers that are out there. And then all of the different problems that we need to solve um, as, as cybersecurity defenders. You know, my, my fundamental point of view is that cybersecurity itself is an intrinsically human problem. We've just sped it up, right? So, so humans are, you know, perpetually a part of the solution when it comes to outsmarting bad guys as we go forward. And, you know, the question I had in my head before I started BugCrowd was like, how do we scale that? How do we, you know, how do we deal with, with the growing internet? How do we, you know, keep my buddies out of jail? Um, on, on, on the hacker side, like the folks that think bad, but do good. How do we make sure that people actually understand that they're part of the solution, not part of the problem, all those different things. So it's been about 11 years now and, uh, you know, so far so good. I haven't, I haven't gotten too tired of it yet. Um, yeah. Awesome. I mean, it's, it's kind of, I mean, I'm glad that you're helping, you know, companies, you know, develop secure products and partnering the researchers with the companies. I think that's a great use case. There's something that's been really hot in the in the media recently, and I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on it. And, you know, if I throw it out there, I'm sure everyone know what it is immediately. But ChatGTP, yep. I, I, I don't know about you, but I've been playing with it. And one thing I've kind of found is it makes the access to the ideas a lot easier. So mm -hmm. if I wanted to do attack a piece of software, for example, I'm, it won't tell me how to do it, but I can ask very specific questions and it might help me find ways to attack it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's that ChatGTP is going to open that up to so many others, maybe finding more vulnerabilities, maybe even potentially on the offensive. These, what, what do you think about ChatGTP? How does that affect the vulnerabilities landscape? I mean, I think a lot of things about ChatGPT just in general, um, but, but specific to, to vulnerability discovery and bug hunting, um, you're pretty much spot on. I, you know, I think uh, people have, like what we've seen already is people using it uh, you know, to ask questions, to, to, you know, create, um, you know, like add polymorphism to payloads, like do different things where they've got a particular approach 
to exploitation for a particular system that they're trying to attack, but they need to try something new and they're not quite sure how to do that. So, so instead of going off and doing, you know, hours and hours of research and reading through all the specs, they just kind of ask chat GPT to, you know, which has already kind of done that for them, um, what it thinks and, and actually use that to inform their next steps. So that's, that's to me probably the most, um, actually common and, and kind of powerful, I think at this point use case for, for vulnerability researchers. Like to me, AI is not a replacement. You know, you see, um, output of chat GPT around like write me a program that does this, that, or the other thing. And it's usually 98% okay. And then there's some problems that you've got to fix up as a human. Um, the same thing applies when you're talking about exploitation and, and, and vulnerability research. So to me, like chat B GPT is more like, it's kind of like the Iron Man suit. Do you know what I mean? Like the suit mm -hmm. without the human is kind of dumb. Um, but the human without the suit is weaker than they could be. So if you put them together, then all of a sudden you've got, you've got something pretty cool. I know most people tend to, you know, their minds go to the negativity of what ChatGPT could do for offensive. Do you see defensive mm -hmm. opportunities there that we, we should be targeting or, you know? Yeah, I think, I mean, for starters, I think the offense is actually a good thing. You know, ultimately, uh, given given what I do with, with Bug Crowd, like we effectively crowdsource discovery of security vulnerabilities, which is offense, but it's for the purpose of defense. We're finding bugs so that they can be fixed. So, you know, I, I think um, the more of that, and, and the easier that can be to put in the hands of defenders, you know, the, the better they'll be able to actually truly understand their risk and the, the better they'll be able to understand how to defend themselves. Um, so that's, you know, my, my kind of hot take answer on that part. Defensively, you know, it's been used. I mean, it, it, that was one of the interesting use cases that popped out almost straight away from the, uh, the threat hunting and, and threat intelligence mm -hmm. group is actually using it to um, drive, you know, Yara rules out of IOCs and, and different things like that. Like if you've got you know, known behavior of a threat actor that you're concerned about as a defender um, and you need to get stuff deployed into your, your detection systems quickly, like chat GPT is a way to actually get that done in a way that's just more cost effective really from both a time and a, and a financial standpoint. Um, that's one use case for, uh, for defense. I'm a, it's kind of funny when I hear, you know, artificial intelligence, AI, ML, you, autom your mind automatically kind of goes to, I need to be really good at statistics and math. Yet ChatGPT's taken that and says, "Don't worry about that. Just interface and talk like you normally would to a human." Just ask me what you want. Yeah, yeah. For sure. It, it's it's humanized the artificial intelligence side of it. We didn't have that before because I've looked at adversarial AI and other things that you, we've kind of seen in the, in the industry where folks are attacking AI models constantly trying to hack, and we're seeing that now with ChatGPT trying to work around yeah, the limitations sure. or fixes. But like I, we've seen this in cybersecurity, AI and ML for a while. What are your thoughts on? Are we ever going to, is ChatGTP or some kind of AI ever just going to take over the jobs? Um, I think there's, there's definitely jobs that it will take over. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it's a replacement for, for human creativity uh, in, in, its, in its pure form because you know, this is kind of fundamental to, to what I started uh, with, with, with the company. It's, it's a belief that you know, human opinion, like the uniqueness of every individual, how we process, how we, how we connect the dots together, um, there's an inherent property to that that is just really difficult and and almost you know i think impossible ideally but you know we'll see as, as time goes by to replace with a computer so there's always this gap right is is, is really what i'm saying and, and anything any job that relies on what happens in that gap i think is going to be pretty safe for for quite a long time at least until you know uh, the robots you know, show up and and we've got a different set of problems to deal with once ai's gotten good enough for 
for that to be on our radar. Yeah, I guess um, until Skynet takes over, we've got to play nice with the robots is what you're telling me and do human well, machine teaming. In, 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 a, in a sense, right? Like I, like I, I think, you know, we're, we're talking about this uh, before we came on, you know, when ChatGPT landed, I was getting a lot of questions from reporters on, on the security implications of, of ChatGPT. And partly because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a busy guy and I had other things to do, but also partly as, a, as an exercise, I actually started plugging those questions into ChatGPT directly um, and, and getting, you know, the answers, like obviously looking at them and making sure that there were, there were points of view that I agreed with and sending them back to the, uh, the reporters. And some of those things made it to print. So, so like you could argue that ChatGPT kind of replaced my job for a little bit that day. Oh, I think it just aided your job, right? It's didn't yeah, fully replace ultimately. it. Ultimately, like yeah, and I think that's I think that is the thing. I think there's a lot of immediate concern. You know, what I love, and you, you called this out just before, what I love about um, this kind of development around ML and AI is it's made it accessible and understandable to a really broad audience all at once, right? Like prior to that, we've been living with this stuff for a really long time. It's just been occluded behind products in, in a way that, you know, makes its presence less obvious. Um, now we're directly interacting with it and pretty much anyone can do it. You don't need to be you know, an expert programmer or a computer nerd, you just need to, you know, basically log in and start playing with it and you're going to figure it out pretty quickly. I mean, you and I both work with the U.S. government. We've been doing it for probably decades now. I, I think mm -hmm. I just read that CISA has got a sandbox that's testing some of the AI ML. I mean, what do you think of their approach? Uh, just some, you know, just get your thoughts around how we're test how what organizations should be doing or what government entities should be doing around AI and uh, ML? Yeah, look, I think what CISA is doing, like CISA's mandate, it's a, it's a little bit like the um, the ACSC in, in Australia where I'm from or the NCSC in the UK. Um, a big part of its purpose is to pro provide a bridge between, you know, the government, like defense, intelligence community, federal civilian, all those guys, and some of this information and knowledge that exists, you know, quote unquote, on the high side, right? Like they, they've figured out, you know, things around the security and the risk models that, that relate to machine learning and AI that, that aren't public knowledge because it's, it's government kind of classified information. Like part of CIS's mandate is to act as a bridge between the high side and the low side to take the, the, you know, pieces of learning that exist and actually, you know, declassify them enough that they can actually be useful to, uh, to focus on the, on the corporate um, side of the world and, and, you know, and partner nations and, and just generally across the internet. So to me, that part is really important because AI is definitely something that, that governments all around the world have been pretty, you know, bullish on and, and working very hard on for quite a long time, um, which is not necessarily something that, you know, everyone thinks of straight away. Um, so it, it stands to reason that their threat models and their considerations around how to secure it properly, what the security consequences and, and potential future threats look like are a fair bit more advanced than they are outside of, of the, uh, of the, uh, of the high side, so to speak. Um, I think it's a really good thing. It, it depends on how they, they implement it obviously. And, and, you know, that's all sight unseen at this point, but the fact that it's happening and the fact that it's happening so quickly, I think that's a really good thing. I mean, the intelligence community has always been about sources and methods is what they have to protect, you know, how they get the data and then mm. what they do with the data to make decisions. I mean, AI, ML, like it would make sense to keep the, the method of how I do it sensitive for them. It's, it's interesting. I was just having this conversation with someone about what we're seeing in industry around globally, like almost like an arms race. And, and there's a couple of arms races going on, like in the, in there, you know, we can all remember the cold war and everyone going after nuclear. And, and now we have a kind of arms race of the 21st century where it's in two different things. One is quantum yep. and the other is Great. just artificial intelligence. 
Yep. And we're seeing nation states like China invest heavily in artificial intelligence. We're seeing a lot of entities like Google, IBM and others publicly say, hey, here's what we've kind of done in quantum. Here's what we're seeing in AI. It almost seems like there's a race to get us get something like ChatGDP, you know, not just humanized, but also um, for various use cases, because it all varies. But do, do you agree with that? We kind of have an arms race here going on. Yeah, no, I, I think I think technological supremacy has been a part of of you know great power um, international politics for for a long time. Like you mentioned before, like nuclear was was a was a very you know dramatic kind of kickoff of the world's understanding of that. Like the space race came next, and mm-hmm. and now we're talking about what that looks like in in computing. Um, so I think that's a, that's a tech thing in general, uh, and and to me, you know, the the two most transformative kind of next sets of technology that we've got to think about collectively as a as a planet at this point in time are, as you said, quantum, quantum computing because that basically takes all of the assumptions that we've applied to the limitations of computing over the past fifty years and throws them out the window, right? Um, and then AI in in the sense that um, you know ultimately like it's like I said before it's it's pretty powerful as an Iron Man suit and and as a as a tool to to multiply the uh, the effect of of human creativity and human action, but also I think it's it's pretty incredible in terms of its ability to steer um, all sorts of different things. Like you look at the role of machine learning in in how some of the uh, the things around disinformation played out, um, you know, that have been discussed yeah. in, in, in election security over the past, you know, five or six years. Like that was actually the thing that tweaked my interest. Prior to that, it was autonomous vehicles and, and the use of AI to actually drive a car. So that that's kind of what got me really curious and fascinated about this place and uh, this space in the first place. But then that whole idea of like, you know, the, the ability to steer how a very large group of humans perceive truth or, or, or fiction, um, without them really realizing that that's happening. Um, that's, you know, that's obviously the potential outcome of these sorts of technologies. So yeah, I think as a nation state, I'd be incredibly interested in that. Um, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that being a good thing, but you know, in terms of its, its power and, and its ability to be, to be used, um, to, to, you know, further the, the interests of a nation state, I think that just makes sense. Yeah. It, it, you, you, you realize the power that ChatGTV could have with potentially, you know, Twitter bots and creating disinformation. And, you know, I, I think I saw one recently around ChatGTP where you're trying to co- convince ChatGTP that one plus one is not two. And it mm. literally says, I'm sorry, I'm mistaken. I'll correct the data. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it makes me kind of think like, I can imagine an adversary or someone that wants to create certain marketing news, you know, it's not just about the press releases. It could be, let's go have, create a thousand bots using ChatGP, put them on Twitter and let's just have yeah. a, get them to have a conversation and that's one-sided and driving yep. the conversation. It, you know, it's, pre, it's pretty powerful. You know, yeah. You and, think- and, I, and I would, I would argue that, um, you know, different disinformation techniques that have been used um, that we've actually already seen in the world have used machine learning and AI in, in the way that you just described. It just wasn't chat GPT that they were yeah. using. So, so all of a sudden this whole thing's become far more accessible. Um, again, I actually think that that's a good thing in terms of, you know, people's ability to actually understand how that works so they can defend against it. Cause like we're talking all about the offensive use case, but if you're aware of that, the fact that that's even possible in the first place, then you can start to take steps to, to, you know, mitigate. Um, and, and hopefully that's one of the outcomes. Do you see us having more discussion around it and regulation around it? Yeah. Yeah. That, that is one area that I'm kind of really curious. Like, how would you regulate 
and even detect. I mean, we've seen the, the academia world look at ChatGPT and say, oh, ChatGPT, don't use it for tests. And now all of a sudden it's not an authoritative source. And you're like, well, what? I need references, you know, if it's going to start doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Regu regulation's difficult. Like, and, you know, again, I, I mentioned, um, you know, the, the automotive industry and the role of, of AI, computer vision, those sorts of things mm -hmm. in, in, in vehicles uh, as an introduction I had into this space. One of the things that was really interesting about that in a, in a panel that I was on, um, you know, whenever that was seven or eight years ago, it feels like a billion years ago at this point because COVID was in the middle. Um, but it was a whole discussion around like the trolley dilemma and, and, and this idea of, of ethical decision-making or ethically dis difficult decision-making. If you've got AI actually making that decision and, and there's, there's harm caused by it, right? Like who's liable at that point? Is it, is it the, is it the owner of the car? Is it the person who was driving the car at the time or, or sitting in the car, you know, in like quote unquote, the driver's seat, um, for as long as that continues to be a thing that exists, right? Um, is it the uh, the designer of the software, the designer of the model, the people that input data into that model? It, like it gets really, really murky really quickly. And um, I still don't feel like there's actually a good answer to that. So, so when you're talking about regulation, oftentimes in my experience, it does follow the chain of liability. And, and that's an example of why that kind of thing can be quite hard. Yeah. It's, I'm just thinking through the life. It is about liability. Mm. It, it, it almost, I mean, we're trying to regulate a, a, a throughout out like crypto, for example. Yet if they crash, if something happens where there's like an FTX incident, it might have been regulated, but who's liable for it? Yeah. It, it's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, there was, a, there was a flash crash. You know, you talk about machine learning as kind of an adjacency to, to, to ML. Um, there was a flash crash, I think, in 2010 uh, that, was, that was triggered uh, in, in the stock market. And that was effectively, you know, an instance of, of you know, adversarial manipulation of machine learning models to create an unintended outcome, which to me is a lot of how this stuff's going to probably get hacked in the future, um, variations of that. Um, and, you know, and the question comes up from that. It's like, well, whose fault is that? Like, is it, is it the fault of people who implemented it? Like whatever else that, that applies across all these different technology sectors at this point. And it's, you know, I think ethically and from a reg regulatory standpoint, that's, it's going to be a bit of a bumpy ride as we figure out actually how to regulate that. But I know that there's a lot of desire to do that, do that. There's bills in Congress right now talking about this type of thing. There's, there's definitely, you know, a bunch of different folk on the Hill that are, that are pushing in this direction to try to like, you know, create at least some sort of set of guardrails around this stuff. It's just a question of what they'll end up looking like. It's funny. I actually remember that specific flash crash you just mentioned, because yeah. I remember I was driving and listening to the radio and they just talked about how it just happened 700 something points, you know, in a split second or two. And yeah. it, if I recall correctly, part of it was a lot of the high speed trading that kind of happens. Correct. And they just started, they had their, their models were building on top of each other and just kept adding to it. You know what I mean? Yep. So they're yep. like, oh, look, it's going down. Let me just jump on top of it. You almost Which is kind of the fundamental, the fundamental essence of machine learning, by the way. Like uh, the, the traders and, and folk out of you know, Chicago and different places like that, like they've been doing machine learning in, in pretty advanced ways, you know, well before uh, like you and I were starting to talk yeah. about it as the thing that we're implementing, right? So it has, this stuff actually has been around for quite a long time. It's just becoming progressively more obvious and more exposed to the general population. I think it started like as early as like the late nineties, believe it or yeah. not, there, the financial sector was using them to make decisions and, yep. but you know, <laughs> it, it, they just call it statistics back then. 
<laughs> you know, we've talked about ChatGTP, AI, ML, liability. You, I just read an article recently where I think you walked through like building that ChatGTP. Can we? I want to drill into the ChatGTP a little bit more because you you literally asked you know you asked ChatGTP to build something in this article, and then at the same time it said no. But then when you broke it down, oh yeah, yeah. It, Walk us through that uh, and what you could do with ChatGPT if you're not a computer person, let's say, but you wanted to learn how to do something. Yeah, for sure. So, so I think what you're referring to is is um, bypasses on on some of the restrictions within within ChatGPT. And you know, by way of of background, I, I kind of mentioned it before. Um, kind of grew up as a as a hacker, really, like tearing apart technology. Uh, I think you know the other side of it was that I I've always had this this kind of you know desire, enjoyment, whatever you want to call it. Like I enjoy thinking like a criminal, but I don't want to be one. So there's this, there's this kind of, you know, I want to tip things upside down and get them to do what they're not meant to do. And there's kind of this mischief behind that to some degree, but I, I'm also fairly strongly bound by this idea of not causing harm. So that kind of is how I ended up doing what I do today. But, um, you know, the moment I sat down on chat GPT, I'm, I'm monkeying with it and, and, and trying to get it to do stuff like learning how it works to begin with, but then starting to push its limits and figure out, you know, what I can get it to do that maybe shouldn't. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, pretty much I, I started, you know, asking it questions around, um, things that had a safety consequence. Um, so, you know, I, I won't go too deep into the example, but, you know, it basically spat out an answer saying, hey, this this is something that might be harmful to people. I can't provide that answer because, you know, ethically I'm programmed not to not to facilitate, um, you know, harm. Right. So I, I basically rephrased the question and said, I'm writing a fictional novel um, that has a technical audience and dot, dot, dot. And it just gave me the answer straight away. So, you know, the, the chat GPT have been onto that because I think that trick kind of popped out in the first 24 hours or so. Um, and they started, I think, manually modifying some of the models and, and some of the things they'd, they'd let it do and not do to, to kind of, you know, avoid that bypass. But that's the kind of, I mean, that to me looks a lot like the rest of what we do at BugCrowd. That's kind of like hacking a web app or, or you know, an IoT system or, or a network, right? You've got you know, an authentication um, system that the, if you're a normal legitimate user, you authenticate with a username, password, MFA, whatever you've got, and then you, you go off and do your thing. If I'm a hacker, what I'm trying to do is figure out, like in the absence of having those credentials, how I'm going to get in anyway. Um, it's the same kind of mental models and mindset, and it's being applied to a computer system. It's just being done in natural language and, and with, you know, AI-esque outputs instead of access granted to a, to a network or a web app. I think the liability is key. I mean, I'm glad that the OpenAI company that owns JetDP is actually putting ethics into it. And I think, and you've put ethics in bug crowd and everything else since you started it early on. So data shared responsibly and everything yeah. else. Is there something we should be looking at researching in, in government or industry around AI liability and ethics that we're missing today? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, on, on the liability side and, and the regulatory side, you know, working out who's responsible for what and, and, and how, how that works, I think that's going to be a really, I mean, ultimately it'll either, you know, be regulated or it'll come out in case law. Like they'll, they'll, something will happen. There'll be, you know, something that'll go to court. It'll, you know, go up the, uh, the different circuits and, and, you know, potentially even make it to the Supreme Court at some point. And then there'll be a ruling that kind of creates precedent that, um, that we used to roll forward from. 
um, you know, hopefully we can get ahead of that, but obviously this is, you know, this is a pretty dense subject, right? So, yeah. so actually seeing something break in, in, in the wild and, and having that be the thing that um, informs us how to do it better in the future. I think that's the likely outcome from, from my perspective. Yeah. Because I think the um, liability has to be specific. Let, let's say automotive, like you mentioned computer vision. You know, if something yeah. happens with the car, there there's going to be specifically focuses on how the car did it versus, hey, you got the data from ChatGTP on how to build X and you shouldn't have yeah. done that. Or yeah. it could also be used to maybe directly attack systems as well in the future, you know, yeah. without a human. But it's, 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 I think the industry is definitely moving faster than we realized. And that's what ChatGTP kind of changed. Um, I, I think I saw, I think Tesla had a couple major layoffs last year where they replaced their whole AI team. And before or before that, they literally had humans double checking all the, the roads and make sure the lines are built correctly. And they're like, oh, this intersection with 300 points would have taken 2000 hours to build but with AI. And now we're doing it in 10 hours, you know. Right. And, th and that just aided to the vision capabilities once it had all the data. But to your point, you know, we humanize ChatGDP and AI MOs. We got to find ways to work with them, you know, going forward. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, I think that's the big, that's the big takeaway. Cause you know, we're talking about the car example, another, another really fun, um, you know, and then the flash crash we, we just brought up as well. Another really fun example that I, that I used to explain adversarial manipulation of these models was a, a bit of research that was done, I think in Norway, maybe, um, you know, four or five years ago where basically a, a researcher had like a hundred Android phones, um, put them in, in a little red rocket kind of, you know, trolley thing. Right. And then walked very slowly across a bridge. What that did was, was to basically, you know, signal, um, to all of the mapping systems that there was a traffic jam on that bridge and there was a problem and it routed traffic for the entire city around that part of that part of the city. Um, and it's like, it's a lousy, you know, like as a, as a demonstration, it's, it's kind of funny, right? But it kind of, to me, that actually demonstrates how vulnerable this stuff potentially is. Like that's not a safety critical impact unless, for example, you're trying to get home, you know, to care for a loved one who's sick. Like there's, there's all sorts of different, you know, causal kind of outcomes of, of even something as funny and, and asinine as, as that. Um, that we just really haven't thought through. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, this is what I keep on coming back to. Like, there's all of these unintended consequences that tied to this stuff. And I can sit around and imagine and dream stuff up as, as can, you know, many other, many other folk, but that's, that's the realm of the infinite. Like what we've, what we've got to actually do is figure out what we're trying to, you know, set as the finite, you know, set of guardrails around how we do this well. And that's just going to take time. I mean, you, you, you did bring up the ethical piece as well. Cause I think that's, that's a really, <clears throat> that's going to force a really interesting discussion around whether or not technology should project its ethics onto, onto its users. Like my personal belief in that is that you cannot avoid technology doing that. Like it's built by people. So, so the ethical <clears throat> principles of, of the owners and, and, you know, the folks that work for that company do in whatever way bleed out through, through that platform, how much you like, however much you want that to happen or not. Um, I think it's a function of physics, not so much of choice, but with this, it forces it into a, into a question of choice. Like, are we going to decide that, that, you know, a certain set of things that, you know, you're asking an AI bot are off limits because they're ethically wrong. Like what about the people that disagree with that? You know, what, what, yeah. what happens to them at that point in time? So it gets, it forces a whole bunch of really gnarly, I think, um, decision making, <laughs> And, you know, as we've been saying this whole time, it's kind of been foisted on us over the past, 
you know, it feels like GPT has been around in, in my head now for like two years. And like, really, it's only been a couple of months, right? But it's just created so much conversation and so much momentum around this space and these sorts of, you know, considerations. I think, um, you know, it's the right time to be having them. It's just a lot. <laughs> yeah, I know that NIST has been looking at adversary AI. It's, you know, how do you attack the AI? And, and your, your use case, an example of someone taking a bunch of phones, just walking across the bridge. I think I've read articles and seen this where folks who had too much traffic or roads are being used as cut-throughs, folks just took their phone, turned on Waze, Google Maps, and left it in the car so it creates a yeah. traffic jam because they didn't yep. want anyone else driving on their street. That is a <laughs> you thing, know? Yep. It, it, yep. That is an actual thing. Um, I know in certain parts like New York and San Francisco, it happens all the time. But I, we definitely have to consider the ethics and the liability. And there are folks that are human and will attack AI. So we've got to have more defenders as well. Yeah. Well, and, and even like to your point, there, there are residents of neighborhoods that don't want cars driving past. So like they're not who we classically consider as an attacker <laughs> in this context, but they are attacking the system at that point. Yeah. So it's like, all right, you know, it's, it's just, it's a fascinating space. And I think, you know, coming back to what we do uh, at Bug Crowd, like we've, we've been mostly focused on, on, you know, vulnerabilities in software, vulnerabilities in systems, websites, you know, networks, IOT, all sorts of different things. And, you know, work with all sorts of different companies, including automotive, you know, financial and, and, and so on. Um, <clears throat> around 2019 or so, we started seeing inbound interest from, from different segments in, in our customer space saying, Hey, can you, get people together that actually understand how to attack, um, you know, AI systems, machine learning models and create unintended consequences. Cause we actually want to run programs where, in, where we incentivize them to break this stuff so that we can figure out how to make it stronger going forward. Um, and we've seen that ramp up over the past three years and, and, and definitely spike with, with chat GPT because suddenly everyone's thinking about it. Now, I think, you know, if you're a, a government agency, if you're a large company, you'd probably go to crowd, uh, bug crowd. Is there, I think you've got another program out there called Disclose IO for folks yep. who have small businesses but want to try this or have something that they're not big enough that they want to commit to it yet. Um, how do they get involved? Yeah, for sure. So what, what Disclose IO is, is essentially a, a whole bunch of different tools to facilitate what's called vulnerability disclosure. Um, and what that is, um, you know, probably the easiest way to explain it, it's like neighborhood watch for the internet, right? So, so if you've got systems that are out there on the internet, and you understand that you know vulnerabilities just happen, that they're not happening because you're terrible um, or, or that you're bad at security or whatever else. Sometimes they are, but most of the time they, they're just a thing because humans make mistakes and, and those mistakes end up in code. So you know, what, what a, a vulnerability disclosure program is, is, is basically kind of assuming the fact that there are bugs, there will be people that will find those bugs or all those security issues. And some of those people are gonna wanna try to tell you so that you can, you can be safer and, and that you can make your users safer in the process. So Disclosure is a bunch of legal language that people can pick up and use as a boilerplate to set up a basically a brief. Um, it includes things like safe harbor so that as a security researcher, I know that if I try to help your organization, you're not going to automatically assume I'm a bad guy and you know I get, I get a knock on the door late at night at some point. Um, <clears throat> And, you know, all of the different things around around basically plugging that in, like the relationship between that and BugCrowd is BugCrowd's platform actually helps people run those programs. Um, whereas Disclose.io is really about you know, facilitating, uh, getting them set up. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Casey, thank you today for the conversation on ChatGDP and how it's changing the industry. And thank you for everything you do with BugCrowd, you know, and the open source community and, and our U.S. government helping us get stronger every day. So thank you. 
Most welcome. Appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher. 